Florida moves closer to permitless carry as Beto flounders in Texas, plus an interview with Professor Burnett on the charges against Michigan school shooters' parents. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can sign up for a membership today to help support our independent and informed reporting on firearms policy and politics with your membership, which will get you access to exclusive posts, dozens of exclusive posts that feature my analysis, analysis of Jake Charles, other writers, as well as exclusive stories. And you'll get this podcast a day early if you sign up. So this week, we're taking on an interesting story, which is the school shooting, the horrible school shooting that happened in Michigan, has now resulted not only in charges against the shooter, but also his parents for uh, their negligence. So I wanted to have on an expert. You know, on this show, we'd like to have on people who actually have some knowledge of what they're talking about and experience in the areas that we're discussing. So to that end, I've, we've got Evan Vernick from, um, he's a professor at the Illinois, Uni- or sorry, Northern Illinois University College of Law. He's an associate press professor there. Uh, Evan, can you tell the audience just a little bit more about yourself? Sure, Stephen. First of all, thank you for the invitation to be here. I'm excited uh, uh, to have a conversation with you. Um, I teach criminal law and procedure at Northern Illinois, and I also teach constitutional law and legislation. Um, I'm also very actively involved in efforts to transform the criminal legal system in ways uh, that are more fair, more equitable, and more just for uh, people who are disproportionately burdened by it at present, which tends to be racial minorities, which is why I wrote the article that I did and I took the position that I did. And I'm looking forward to discussing this case with you to explain uh, my perspective a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You had a piece in the Washington Post that talked about potential consequences of charging these parents in this case, uh, especially as it pertains to the use of that kind of prosecution in the future against uh, minorities, uh, which is something that we've talked about on this show in regards to the arguments in the Supreme Court case over New York's May issue law. You've seen um, a number of briefs in that case from both uh, the National African American Gun Association and also from the public defenders um, group up in New York that argues the these that law has disproportionate impact on uh, especially young African-American men. And so in, in this case, obviously the parents and, and the shooter, the accused shooter himself, who, who murdered a number of his classmates, is a horrific crime. Uh, one of the worst school shootings we've seen in several years now. But the parents are being charged in addition to the son, which is fairly unusual. It's not something that you see very often in these cases. Can you just give us a little bit of background on the law question here? So I would go further than say it's unusual. It is extraordinary. No parent has ever been charged or convicted of a homicide offense in connection with their child's mass shooting. Mm -hmm. So 
This prosecution has already broken new grounds, and convicting the parents would certainly break new ground. Now, what are they specifically being charged with? They're being charged with involuntary manslaughter. Involuntary manslaughter is a felony that's punishable by up to 15 years in prison. And in Michigan, although the standards in other states um, differ in various ways that we might get into, uh, the minimal mental state, mens rea, um, intention that you have to have in order to be convicted of the offense is gross negligence. You have to be grossly negligent. And your gross negligence needs to cause the death of another person. Gross negligence means you've fallen way, way, way below the standard of care that a reasonable person would take. And you have been culpably ignorant of a substantial and unjustified risk. This is more than just falling below the standard that a reasonable person would take, which could get you liability for a civil suit, um, it's really, really, really falling below and it needs to cause death. Right. And you you provide an example in your piece at the Washington Post for a uh, circumstance where this this has been applied to a shooting. Yes. And it was a, a father leaving a, a shotgun loaded and easily accessible to his young children. And then one of them shot the other one in an accidental shooting. Yes. And he was convicted under the same standard. Right. Um, but you don't, you don't find the actions of the crumblies in this case, the parents to meet that same standard or uh, is that right? Like given what we know about them so far. So I want to be careful here with suggesting that the prosecution is going outside the law to bring these charges. Mm -hmm. Common law is developed by, well, it's frankly developed by prosecutors and judges, but it's ultimately in the, in the cases that are decided, developed by judges who decide what counts as gross negligence and what doesn't. Sure. Before this case, um, before people v. head, there weren't really any cases that um, uh, were uh, that were particularly similar to this one. But then there was head. And now the prosecution has a plausible argument that they can rely upon to bring these charges. However, mm -hmm. there are certain important differences between these cases that the defense is almost sure to raise uh, as this develops. Uh, we should keep in mind that the fact that the uh, whether this case goes to trial or not, that's not assured. Most cases don't. Um, so this case may not result in an opinion that really examines head to uh, that's the name of this case to determine whether this is within the scope of that. But the important differences here are uh, there are a couple of them that are that are that are very relevant. First of all, we're dealing with an accidental shooting in that case. We're dealing mm -hmm. with an accidental shooting by a 10-year-old girl who's not competent to use firearms by any stretch of the imagination that followed- Not unsupervised, at least. Unsupervised, right? that followed very directly from accessing the short-barreled shotgun um, that, was, that was unlocked and that was in this playroom. So what are the differences between that case and this one? Well- the big difference is that this is, as the prosecution has presented it, a series of deliberate killings for which the uh, 
for which the shooter is being charged and is an adult for first degree murder. Hmm. First degree murder. So we're not talking about a, a just a, a negligent failure to um, to keep the gun secure. Uh, we're talking about the prosecution is alleging a series of failures on the parts of the parents to intervene and to prevent their child from killing a number of people deliberately. And regardless of head, that is going to be a difficult case to prove because of the issue of causation. Even if the parents fell way below the standard of care that a reasonable person would take under these circumstances, um, there's the question of whether their negligent failure actually caused, in the sense relevant to criminal law, the deaths of these children. One of the things that can break the chain of causation in criminal cases, and even in civil cases, quite frankly, um, is deliberate action by a third party that counts as an intervening event. So, whereas in Head, we have negligent failure to keep um, guns secured, leading to an accidental killing in the same room as the gun of another child by uh, a child. Here we have a child deciding to get into this uh, unsecured area to take this gun to school and then to deliberately kill several other people. To show that the parents' omissions, their failures to intervene, cause the deaths of those children is going to be a difficult thing for the prosecution to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, certainly. And I imagine that's why you don't see a lot of these kinds of cases after school shootings or mass shootings that involve uh, minors. But I will say that in this case, you obviously you had uh, the parents bought the gun for Mm -hmm. Their son uh, as a Christmas gift, from what we know, yeah. or at least what prosecution is saying. And they were once warned about him looking for ammunition on his phone while he was at school. Now, obviously, that's not necessarily going mm -hmm. to be something that indicates he's going to carry out a school shooting. But they, it was an issue that the school had already brought up once. Mm -hmm. And then on the day of the shooting, my understanding is, mm -hmm. he was found to have drawn notes that indicated he was going to commit a mass shooting. Uh, now, the, these were drawings, um, but they uh, showed essentially scenes of killing. Mm -hmm. um, I believe they had notes that wrote, you know, blood everywhere. Uh, you know, please help make the voices stop. You know, things that are extremely disconcerting and indicate, you know, could to any reasonable person could indicate that this child is suffering a severe mental health mm -hmm. episode that could lead to violence, specifically violence committed with the gun that the parents bought. And when the parents were called into the school and told about this, they did not remove this, the shooter from the alleged shooter from school. Mm -hmm. They left him in school that day. They didn't check his backpack or check whether or not the gun that they had bought for him was in fact at home where it was supposed to be. And it turned out that, and so he went, he was sent back to class and he had the gun on him 
that entire time from what we understand. And then he carried out that shooting that mm -hmm. day. So, you know, it obviously this, these do seem like pretty damning facts as far as mm -hmm. at least how incredibly irresponsible the parents were. Now you could also mm -hmm. suggest perhaps that the school should have done more in this circumstance mm -hmm. as well. And maybe that plays into their defense. Mm -hmm. uh, the school didn't, think it was serious enough to keep him out of class i i guess mm -hmm. um so maybe maybe there'll be more that comes out but those facts are pretty mm -hmm. pretty damning right uh, mm -hmm. so two points um and uh i want to frame this as gently as possible but it is an important point to keep in mind when we're reporting upon decisions by prosecutors to bring charges these are mm -hmm. not facts they are allegations. They have not sure. been proven in a court of law. We have heard only one side of the story. We have heard the prosecution side. Mm -hmm. With that out of the way, if what the prosecution says is true, this is an egregious case of an astonishing irresponsibility on the parts of the shooter's parents. The question that I raise in my article and that I'm primarily concerned with is not just this case, but future sure. cases where in a context where a principle has been accepted at a certain level of generality, parents can be held accountable uh, as felons for the crimes of their children. And what kind of impact that has on people who are not the crumblies, because mm -hmm. this case has received a ton of attention. People are monitoring it very carefully, but it will drop off the radar. And when it drops off the radar, the exercise of prosecutorial discretion is going to be um, operating in ways that people are not always able to see. 92 to 95 percent of criminal adjudications never see the lights of a courtroom. They are pled out. Prosecutors bring charges. There are what are euphemistically uh, described as plea bargains, but really they are coerced agreements. Um, if you just invoke your Sixth Amendment right to trial by jury, you face the prospect of a harsher punishment than you would face if you voluntarily plead guilty and accept the punishment the state has specified for the offense. So in that setting, we're not just worried about, you know, the facts of a case that we are aware of possibly stretching the law. We have to worry that facts are never going to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt at all. We have to assume that whatever law is created by this case is going to be stretched. Mm. And we have to price that into our decision about how to think about this case right now, rather than simply saying, which I'm not suggesting that you're saying this, but it is an argument that gets raised in this context. Yes, but this case is particularly egregious. In the context of the criminal law, you can never just think about this case. You've got to think forward and you've got to think about the cases that you're not seeing. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, it just sounds like your main concern here uh, and certainly comes across in the piece is about the sort of precedent that this prosecution is going to set, even if it 
doesn't make it to trial, perhaps. Just the fact that prosecutors might try this more and more aggressively down the line Mm -hmm. uh, is going to have an impact. And obviously in your piece, you're particularly concerned about the kind of people or who is going to be impacted by some of these uh, perhaps even more dubious prosecutions Mm -hmm. down the line. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So in candor, I must say that my starting point um, does a lot of work in terms of like the disposition that I take towards proposed expansions of the criminal law in any setting. The starting point is that American law right now makes too many people into criminals. It punishes them too harshly, and it punishes them in ways that either have the purpose or the effect of disproportionately burdening racial minorities. That's why we have a burgeoning prison population that is unprecedented in size in our own national history and is internationally distinctive. And that's why that prison population is disproportionately constituted by racial minorities and in particular black Americans. Now, one of the reasons that the criminal law does these things is because prosecutors have a great deal of discretion. They have too much discretion. They have too much discretion who to prosecute, what to charge, and whether those charges are ever subject to adversarial testing. So I come in with a strong presumption against virtually any expansion of criminal law. If I see a proposed statute that makes more people into criminals, I presume that it's going to do more harm than good. If I see a decision by a prosecutor who's making novel charging decisions, I presume that it's not a good idea, even if it's within the letter of the law. But I do look more closely into it to determine whether there really is specific cause for concern, concern that this law or this prosecutorial decision um, will exacerbate the problem that I've identified with racially disproportionate um, uh, uh, incarceration and punishment. And in this case, I do see things that raise concerns. Yeah, and and we we talked a little bit about this with Adam Serwer from the Atlantic uh, yeah. on the podcast a, a little while back, sort of the racial disparity and and guns and really racing guns in America. But mm-hmm. there actually was just a uh, a new report released from um, the Bureau of Justice Statistics mm-hmm. that uh, from the Urban Institute that looked at uh, federal prosecution of gun crimes, federal gun crimes, uh, and the conviction rates. And you, you do see this because, I, I, frankly, I think this is one of the areas when, when discussing criminal justice reform and disparate impact of uh, the legal system on minorities that kind of gets ignored, honestly, a, a lot of the time. But it's very clearly the case that African-Americans, especially African-American men, are disproportionately impacted by federal gun laws. Uh, at the very least, this report, you know, they found that um, of those who were convicted of federal firearms uh, possession charges, 49% were black, 30% are white, 19% Hispanic. Now, black Americans, they only make up, uh, according to the Census Bureau, um, 13.4% of the population. So obviously being the largest demographic as far as federal prosecution of uh, gun possession crimes goes, doesn't match with the mm-hmm. proportion 
of the population that that they are now. And there's also obviously a huge disparity in gender here in 97 percent, 97.7 percent of federal uh, firearms offenders are men. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that's even bigger disparity. But that but still, uh, you know, it, it's it's something that doesn't get talked a lot about. I, I do think it's it's interesting in both this particular case with the Crumblies um, and and these federal crimes, the underlying crime uh, might be something that most people would agree should be a crime. I mean, in, in these federal cases, you're, you're talking about possession of firearms by people who are convicted felons. Now, there's some there's certainly some debate over whether or not nonviolent felons should have lifetime uh, prohibitions on gun ownership. Uh, and there's even some people who would argue that you shouldn't have a lifetime prohibition after you've served your, your time for whatever crime you committed, even if it was a violent felony. But uh, I think most mm -hmm. Americans probably support these mm -hmm. measures, but you do, but you do see a very clear mm -hmm. uh, problem with distribution of justice in this case, uh, you know, mm -hmm. It can't be the case that this there's no racial aspect going on here. Right. And I framed my arguments in a way that was designed to present for readers who consider themselves progressive and who also consider themselves opponents of mass incarceration or opponents of mass incarceration, a choice. Um, you can have the expansion of criminal law to cover this territory. Or you can have a genuine across-the-board commitment to reducing our prison population. But you cannot have both. It may be worth it. You may consider that in order to express our moral outrage or to deter future parents from engaging in negligent activity or any number of justifications for the, uh, the punishment that the Crumblies are facing, um, uh, you may say, well, it's it's worth it. It is worth swelling our prison population uh, in a way that disproportionately burdens minorities in order to prevent mass shootings. But you need to be clear eyed that that's the kind of decision that you're making. And once you're th thinking about the decision in those terms, you just might want to consider alternatives that don't present the same risks. And I think that there are alternatives that do not pre present the same risks. Yeah. Uh, well, one, I think that that point is especially salient. People often don't consider the real world consequences of the sorts of laws that they are proposing, especially, in my opinion, when it comes to gun laws. Uh, you've seen this, I think, as we briefly mentioned at the beginning of this interview with may issue concealed carry laws in places like New York, mm -hmm. which public defenders put uh, a brief in that that indicated, you know, in real life, mm -hmm. the, I think a lot of people, especially on uh, the left or on the side of, uh, you know, gun, gun safety, uh, as they prefer to call it, right, mm -hmm. uh, gun safety groups or gun control groups, however you want to call them, they like the concept of, well, everyone who's, if anyone is going to carry a gun in public, which a lot of them don't think anybody should really. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, you know, that, that, that's a, Fair enough position to have. Mm -hmm. um, but if anyone is going to have it, they should be, you know, especially vetted 
and police should get a say over whether or not mm -hmm. they can do it, uh, which is effectively how these laws work. And in practice, yeah, that means that most people can't get a permit. And then what that means, especially in neighborhoods where people feel unsafe, right. uh, which uh, oftentimes is the case in low income uh, and minority neighborhoods in cities like New York, a lot of people are going to turn to carrying guns illicitly mm -hmm. because they can't get the permits to do it legally. And you're going to have a lot of people who get arrested just for that, not because they've done anything else. Right. Or there's any evidence that they were committing a crime with their gun beyond possessing it. Right. Or that they had a history of any sort of violent crime. And, and that's the reality mm -hmm. of this situation. And I believe the public defenders even went so far as to say that the Second Amendment effectively doesn't exist for, for certain groups of people uh, like that. Right. It says that the licensing ski, uh, the licensing process has been riven with racist assumptions from its inception and that today it basically serves as a means by which former NYPD officers can acquire guns legally and pretty much everybody else is left outside of the space that's protected by the Second Amendment. Um, I mean, you have... Uh, it, you know, the way to concretize kind of the, this, this dissonance that sometimes goes on on the left about this is you're not going to find somebody on the left who is a proponent of stop and frisk and who doesn't think that it's a constitutional abomination. Stop and frisk was as abusive as it was in significant parts because uh, officers had uh, grounds under which that they could basically assume that anybody who had a firearm who did not go through the appropriate channels was carrying that firearm illegally and could be stopped and frisked and the weapons could be removed from the streets. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, effectively, it was a policy to enforce New York's May issue concealed carry law. That's what most people. Exactly. That's what a lot of the people got arrested for is p simple possession, not because they were they had any evidence that those people were intending to rob somebody or do anything else other than protect themselves. Right. Absolutely. And uh, I stress that stuff like this can happen without anybody consciously intending it. Um, right. It doesn't need to be a intentionally malicious scheme that is developed to disenfranchise or disempower black Americans, although there's there's relevant history that suggests that at least certain junct at certain junctures it was. Sure. The Mulford Act in California, for example, is was specifically targeted at Black Panthers uh in the nineteen sixties, which right. um which banned open carry in California. That was there were certainly explicitly racial uh, motivations for that law. And yeah. obviously some people also argue the same thing with the Sullivan Law and right. In New York, uh, as far as right. the, that's the case that's in front of the, the Supreme Court right now. But, 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 yes. but even if they're not, I mean, the structural factors that lead to um, uh, uh, low income urban communities being disproportionately inhabited by black Americans that then feel the need to protect themselves is going to lend itself to a disproportionate impact of restrictive gun laws on black Americans, regardless of anybody's malign intentions to specifically disenfranchise them. And one of the things that I talk about in, in my article is I don't say, look, I think that uh, Prosecutor McDonald 
is even thinking about race in this context, but she doesn't need to be thinking about it in order for the decision that she makes to legitimize an expansion of the criminal law that is going to have a disproportionate impact on black Americans. And that's why I wrote this, to make sure that the stakes are plain and that they're out there. So at a moment when everybody is focused on this, as opposed to a moment in which people have turned their attention to other things, we can have that kind of forthright discussion about this um, instead of hastily uh, embracing an expansion of, of um, criminal law that will give a certain amount of satisfaction under the circumstances, but is going to lead to consequences down the road that uh, we'll regret to the extent that we keep them, uh, that we follow them at all. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I think a lot of people will immediately question the racial aspect going on here just because obviously, you know, the Crumblies are not black. Um, certainly. But mm -hmm. uh, I do think that you have uh, a, a, a cogent argument about how expanding this particular process, mm -hmm. the uh, prosecution for this crime, expanding what constitutes negligent homicide in this way mm -hmm. could have an impact down the line yeah. uh, in, in the same way that, you know, we've seen you know, federal gun laws have a disproportionate impact on sure. minorities. And just to, uh, just to now, concretize that concern um, a little bit, the concern is that um, stereotypes involving um, black parental responsibility have demonstrably influenced the operation of the criminal law over the course of decades. And to the extent that those stereotypes are still believed and acted upon, um, an expansion of the criminal law that says that under certain circumstances, children, uh, parents can be held responsible for the criminal acts of their children is going to fall disproportionately on black Americans because of those stereotypes. By the same token, um, you notice in this case that, uh, that the shooter is being charged as an adult. Black children are disproportionately likely to be charged as adults because they are often perceived as being more mature and more calculating. So you have in this mix, in this uh, area of expansion of criminal liability, two operative stereotypes. Black children are more mature. Black parents are irresponsible. Once you imbibe those stereotypes, or if you assume that prosecutors will sometimes act on them, you have a potent mix for racially disparate prosecution that is based on parental irresponsibility stemming from criminal acts of children. Right. And you cite a number of statistics in your piece about that. Obviously, it's a controversial uh, topic that uh, has uh, really been at the center of a lot of our national pol political debate yeah. for a while, some of these concepts. But uh, and, and we're not going to solve all that here today on the Really? This I show, thought we were but, going to. Oh, <laughs> but uh, but certainly people should read what you've written on that front uh, and decide for themselves uh, as far as uh, the, those concerns go. I think certainly the statistics would indicate there's at least some truth to, to what you're saying here, uh, whether or not I whether or not people would mm help -hmm. how, how far along that path they, they go is another question mm -hmm. uh, entirely. Right. But but um, you do offer up a solution in the piece, which I think we also have some disagreement over, uh, perhaps, which is that um, safe storage laws are a better solution in this case uh, for, I guess, holding parents accountable mm -hmm. when children get 
un, unsupervised access to firearms and then use them to kill people, mm-hmm. specifically in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, what, first off, can you just say why you think that would be a better solution than these these charges that the Crumbies are facing? I'm worried about the creep of the of a broad principle that parents can be held accountable for the criminal acts of their children. That is my principal animating worry in this in this setting. The relative advantage, and I want to stress that I don't come out and endorse safe storage laws. I say that they are compared to what? Compared to what I regard as a very dangerous expansion of criminal liability, something that is more cabins. They are tied to specific failures on the part of parents that cause uh, that um uh, to uh, to keep guns stored and secured that cause shootings by a child or the shooting of a child. So mm-hmm. instead of worrying about the possibility that um, you know the failure of a part on the part of a parent to intervene in his son's gang behavior is going to lead to criminal liability if the kid beats somebody up um, in co- the context of a gang initiation. At least you have something that is is tethered to a specific failure that is that is um, that is relevant to the problem of mass shootings that we're trying to address in this setting. So without endorsing the safe storage laws, which exist in about 30 states, including the District of Columbia, and which Michigan is probably going to reconsider, um, I suggest that there, the relative risk of, of harm is uh, is less. I see. So because uh, obviously this, you could make the same point here that we've been talking about all along yes. about how this would be uh, accomplished in practice or how it'd be carried out in practice, and it would probably have a disproportionate impact on minorities even still, yep. uh, even though it's more focused. But I, I suppose you're just saying that uh, in this case, that's a better option than creating a wholesale principle about yep. uh, parents' responsibility for their children's criminal actions. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I'm of two minds on it. You know, obviously, uh, if you're a gun owner and a parent, you should keep your firearms inaccessible to your children. Um but usually, in most cases, it seems to me that adding a criminal responsibility on top of the parents' responsibility, because most mm-hmm. mass shootings are quite rare. School shootings are remain rare. Uh, obviously, we'd all love, we'd all would want them to be zero, just like we'd want all violence to go mm-hmm. to zero. And there's plenty of debate to be had over how to get to that point, but. I always, whenever I think of safe storage laws, beyond the fact that they often would burden people who who don't have children mm-hmm. um, and really aren't the business of uh, anyone but that person inside their home, uh, I, I wonder how much of a deterrent it really is to charge a parent after their kid has killed themselves with a mm-hmm. with a gun that they left on, like how much. Mm-hmm added deterrence is that i mean probably keeping your children alive would be the the deterrent to leaving your guns unsecured or, or mm-hmm. keeping your child from in this case committing a horrible uh act of you know mm-hmm. just the uh, murder but but like, yeah. worse than you know it's just yeah. an unimaginable act like this so yeah uh but at the same time it's also you know when i look at the charges against them uh, certainly, I, I do. I do very much sympathize with, with your point of view on this, uh, as far as the creating this new principle and the effects that that's going to have down the line. But 
uh, you, obviously, mm -hmm. when you look at the facts of this case, and most people think, well, these parents, something should be done to the, these yeah. parents. They were that wildly irresponsible. Uh, yeah. Immediately, yeah, they had an immediate. And again, your point about this is what the prosecutors are saying. And I don't f know that I fully buy what the prosecutors are saying, because why did the school not do more mm -hmm. in that case as well? That's very yeah. odd that the school had these notes and these warnings and let him go back to. Why would you why would that be something the school would allow? Right. Uh, in, in addition to something that the parents would allow, obviously. And why did no one search his backpack? Right. So on and so forth. There's a lot right. of questions that remain unanswered. But if if it all it turns out to be true, yeah, you know, certainly the parent we we all I'm sure feel the parents in the situation were horrifically irresponsible the, to the point where we would like to see something done about it. I guess the mm -hmm. but uh, to your point again, it's uh, it's something that you have to consider the consequences down the line right. of of that. Uh, I will also there's one more point before we wrap things up here uh, that I do find interesting. It's something I brought up with um, Adam Serwer at the time. And, you know, obviously we're two white guys, so we, mm -hmm. I don't have insight into uh, what African-Americans think on this topic or, you know, have a perfect uh, explanation for this. And I'm sure you don't either. And, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously African-Americans don't all think the same way about things. Certainly they're not monolith, but you do see oftentimes much higher support for restrictive gun laws among mm -hmm. African-Americans, even though, you know, they're, they're quite aware of the issues that we've talked about on this podcast, the issues of uh, disproportionate uh, conviction rates for African-Americans uh, with these exact kind of gun laws that they support. So mm -hmm. that's another wrinkle to all this that I, that I wonder about, like, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. What what do you think drives that, mm -hmm. uh, and how how do you respond to it when you're thinking about criminal justice reform? Uh, rather than speculate about it directly, I want to make an analogy based on um, a book that was written by uh, James Foreman Jr. called "Locking Up Our Own," that talks extensively about overwhelming in the black community, at least in the, the formative years of what's now referred to as the war on drugs, for really draconian uh, restrictions on drug use and punishment for drug dealers. There were early efforts um, to basically see the writing on the wall and draw attention to the problem of mass criminalization um, and to develop intercommunity means of responding to the harms wrought by drugs that did not involve the criminal legal system. Um, but what Foreman documents very convincingly, um, to my mind, is that there there was a there was a an important sense in which many members of the black community wanted something that decades later is regarded uh, by most black Americans and really most uh, a great deal of thoughtful observers of all races, colors, and creeds as something that whatever the initial intentions has wrought a tremendous amount of damage on the black community. So when I'm confronted with uh, uh, with uh, with beliefs about what ought to be and what ought not to be illegal um, from uh, people whose lived experiences are very different from mine. Um, I I try my best to to understand them, 
and appreciate that there's going to be an epistemic gap that is uh, um, that is in important respects unbridgeable, but also to emphasize that there are lots of situations where lots of people of varying races, colors, and creeds want things that do a great deal of harm, um, even with the best of intentions. So my response to that is, look, there's a democratic process that we're all going to have to be part of in discussing the questions of what we ought to do here. And um, the voices that are calling for more restrictive gun laws and those who are concerned about them because of the racial impact that I've discussed are going to need to have conversations. And those are going to be difficult conversations. And the only thing that I can say with respect to them is that that's how we need to be if we're serious about democracy rather than, you know, either erasing people's experiences or simply saying, well, if that's what, you know, fill in the blank, these people want, then that's what we ought to do. We should be critically evaluating uh, popular intuitions about all sorts of things, regardless of who the people are in any particular circumstances. Right. And I think, um, Adam's response, uh, who obviously Adam is, is, uh, African-American, but he, his explanation, I thought, was was pretty reasonable in, in terms of, you know, Black Americans understand the issues with the criminal justice system and with disproportionate prosecution of uh, of Black Americans. But at the same time, they also deal with, uh, in, in many Black communities, the violence that they, that, that, Mm-hmm. can uh, be associated with firearms or, you know, gun violence. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of balancing that goes on into, um, yeah. it's a lot like the similar to the debate over um, defunding the police, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think a lot of black Americans view uh, police brutality as an extremely serious issue. Of course, uh, that's mainly obvious from the last, uh, you know, year, year and a half, but mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously well before then, but at the same time, many black Americans want more police presence uh, when, you know, they want to live in safe neighborhoods as well. And and so there's a there is a, a tension there, but it's, it's a sort of tension that everyone deals with. Right. To a certain degree of balancing yeah. uh, these these uh, different competing concerns right. that might, uh, you know, you, you too, go too much one way. Uh, or too much the other way, and it creates a problem that that you know you're not uh, right. intending to. So, right. uh, you know, if that if that all makes sense, yeah, uh, it's it's not a, it's not exactly a, a total uh, you know brain melting contradiction here. It's just mm-hmm. I I don't I just want to be careful not to because uh, oftentimes when I talk about these issues mm-hmm. and race and gun laws, it makes it, I don't want it to sound too much like there's. It'd be crazy for any African American not to agree with my position on on what sh- what the this should be. Right. You know, I, I just like to bring up the fact that no. not just because these um, points are are salient or they make sense doesn't mm-hmm. that's not the whole story. Right. I guess is, is what I try to get at with that. But I really appreciate you being being on. Uh, you actually have um, a book that I think my listeners might be interested in because uh, in some ways it it actually connects with the Supreme court case 
going on right now on gun carry uh, because your your book is uh, about the Fourteenth Amendment, which is actually um, a, a pretty relevant point being brought up in. Uh, especially by the U.S. Solicitor General in the gun carry case, where they argue that the the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment were also the same people who passed a lot of these concealed carry laws that had mm-hmm. good reason uh, ex- ex- exceptions to them, uh, you know, these may issue laws that are currently being decided right now. So. Tell us a little bit about that and where people can buy that book. Sure. So uh, this book, co-authored by myself and Randy Barnett, purports to be the definitive accounts of the original meaning of the 14th Amendment's primary um, uh, individual rights protecting clauses. These are the the privileges or immunities clause, the due process of law clause, and the equal protection clause. Um, Talks about the development of the 14th Amendment, how it's Um, was informed by uh, constitutional theory that was initially developed by abolitionists and then later taken up by the Republican Party, which held that uh, all people were entitled to baseline protection against both public and private violence, uh, protection against arbitrary deprivations of their life, liberty, and property by the government. And citizens specifically, U.S. citizens were entitled to certain rights that were stable, widely accepted by the states, and closely associated with citizenship. And although we don't go into great detail about specific rights in our book, uh, Randy and I uh, feel comfortable claiming that one of those rights was the individual right to bear arms and self-defense. This was a right that had been persistently violated. Um, both during the antebellum period and during the Reconstruction era um, by the Confederates and then formerly Confederate states that had been that the black codes that were developed in the wake of the Civil War specifically targeted uh, black Americans for disarmament while leaving them at the mercy of extra governmental forces, uh, namely the Ku Klux Klan, who did have guns and who did use them. And the Uh, One of the things that I do think is value about the Solicitor General's brief is that it focuses the public's attention on what was going on in 1868 when it comes to understanding the rights guaranteed by the 14th Amendment, rather than just looking back to the founding era in 1791 with the original Bill of Rights. Because a lot happened in the meantime. The contours of the rights uh, changed in certain important respects, and the understanding of the value of those rights and the importance of them changed as well. And if we don't focus on those changes, um, we risk erasing a history of constitutional struggle, and we also risk giving people now less rights than are actually protected by the Constitution. No, I mean, that sounds like a really fascinating book, frankly. Uh, where can people pick it up? Uh, people can pick it up on Amazon. It's published by uh, Harvard University Press under their Belknap imprints. Um, and uh, what can I say? You definitely should find a way uh, to fit it in your stocking. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, we appreciate you being on. I think you're very thoughtful, and I thought this was a, a really good interview. So. Uh, we'll, ha- we'll have to have you on uh, again sometime in the future as well. I'd be glad to, Stephen. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Okay, now it's time for the news update from the reload.com, where you can go over and buy membership today if you want to get exclusive access to the members only pieces. We have dozens and dozens of those at this point. And you'll also get early access to this podcast 
if that's something you're interested in, and the chance to be on the podcast. We got to have another member on soon so that this becomes a more uh, relevant talking point in these uh, these little ad sales. <laughs> we've done we've done a number of them, but we'll have to do we'll have to do some soon here, right, Jake? Yeah. <laughs> so that this, I encourage you guys to reach out. It's a it's a fun yeah, segment. Uh, if you want to be on the podcast, if you're already a member, just email me. Reply to your Sunday newsletter, which is another again perk of being a member. You get a whole exclusive newsletter with the analysis of the week's events from me and Jake here, Jake Fogelman, our contributing writer. Um, and Jake, you have a story to start us off with for the news update out of Texas, right? That's right. A uh, big new poll um, heading into the gubernatorial race that's coming up next year. Um, obviously, a lot of eyes are on Texas because there's been a ton of talk last several years now about possibly that state flipping blue. And so a lot of national eyes are on the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of national interest, obviously, We've covered Beto O'Rourke, uh, tossed his name in there to challenge incumbent Greg Abbott. And so we have our first uh, big poll from a major pollster. Uh, Quinnipiac has a new poll right now out of Texas uh, registered voters. And it's not looking so well for Beto O'Rourke at this point. Now uh, it's, Greg Abbott has it's a, still early just ahead, to preface this. It is still early. But yeah, yeah go, don't let me get ahead yeah, of myself. I mean, but the numbers are pretty bad, right? What, what exactly was the breakdown? Yeah, so the overall favorability, Abbott has a 15-point lead. It's, I think, 52% for Abbott and 37% say they prefer O'Rourke. Uh, but what's even more striking is on they pulled specifically the issue of gun policy, um, and I think it was primed, regardless of who you intend to vote for, who do you think will handle gun policy better? And Greg Abbott enjoyed a staggering 27-point lead uh, on that issue in particular, um, which doesn't bode well for Vader O'Rourke and his uh, pretty radical strategy yeah. so far on the issue. of Yeah, guns. that's a huge lead. Um, I mean, it, this is kind of what everybody predicted, though, I guess. We had Adam Serwer on the podcast from The Atlantic, uh, who lives down in Texas, who's uh, a center-left guy or whatever you want to put him in, in the political world. He's not a conservative, right? Um, and he, he thought that Beto would have to change his position on guns to have a real chance in Texas. And it seems like that's exactly what's happening because, right. So we, we had Beto come out in 2020 uh, during the primary uh, and declare that he was going to take everyone's AR-15s and AK-47s. He, he made it, it was a direct declaration that hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15s and AK-47s is the, the exact quote. And that didn't work for him in the Democratic presidential primary, but he hasn't walked it back since running, you know, since putting his hat in the ring for the Texas gubernatorial nomination. And it's pretty surprising to see. You know, in fact, he's kind of doubled down on it. Uh, and, and his response is to say that Greg Abbott, the incumbent Republican, is actually the gun extremist and that we have too much gun extremism because Abbott signed permitless carry into law in Texas. So I guess voters are not going along with this, at least not yet, right? Yeah, they don't seem to be persuaded that Abbott is the extremist in this case. Um, if you look at the numbers even further, they they break it down by different demographic groups uh, on that same question. And across the board, every age demographic from young voters to those over 65, all sizable majorities say Abbott will handle gun policy better. Hispanic voters say the same, both men and women, those with and without college degrees all say the same thing. 
I believe it was only black voters that said that they preferred uh, Beto O'Rourke on the issue of gun policy. Um, So it wasn't a total wash, but it's just pretty staggering. They preferred him pretty strongly, uh, if I remember correctly from reading your piece. I I believe it was 72% said that they thought that uh, O'Rourke would handle the issue. So that's an interesting uh, racial breakdown there as well, uh, with uh, black Texans being pretty divergent from the rest of the state in terms of their views on gun policies of the two candidates. But uh, I guess Beto's strategy here is the good news you would take away from this poll, perhaps whatever, whatever good news you can take away from a poll where you're losing by 15 points is that guns were not the number one issue. That's right. right? So because the people prefer said that there were three other issues that were more important to them than gun policy, right? Sure. Yeah. The, there was a, a top line of three issues, but really it should have just been one issue because border security was orders of magnitude rated higher amongst voters than all the other issues. The economy was, I think, three times less, th- three times less likely to for voters to say that that was their number one issue. And that was the second mm-hmm. highest representative. But Abbott so, leads on those issues, too, I believe, in this poll. He so. does. Yeah. <laughs> the, the top three issues were border security, economy and abortion. And believe it or not, Abbott led on all three. Yeah. Um, so still doesn't bode that well for, for yeah, Mr. O'Rourke. But so, I, you know, I, I, there's not a lot of good news coming out of Texas right now for Beto, but it's still very early in that campaign. He did get some news, sure. good news in the form of uh, Matthew McConaughey deciding not to run at all. Sure. So I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll keep a track on the Democratic primary there to see if somebody else makes a a good run to try and challenge him for the nomination. But uh, obviously he has a lot of momentum on the democratic side and, and has by far the biggest name idea of anyone running on the democratic side. And it's going to most likely raise the most money of any Democrat running. So uh, that would be the good news is that he's likely to pull off the nomination there. Although you never know what'll happen. And then once, once you get to the general election and things get closer to the actual election, polls tend to tighten in, in most races. So Absolutely. we'll see where it goes. Obviously, he he lost to a less popular uh, Republican in Ted Cruz just recently. And so I don't know. It's hard to imagine what it is that's going to make make him beat Greg Abbott, who's more popular and who still has a approval rating above water, if I'm correct on that, right? That's what I was going to say. That's what is interesting, because for a while there, a couple months ago, you saw Abbott start to dip uh, underwater a little bit, whereas popularity was down. Some people attributed that to maybe the winter storm that happened. Some people attributed it to maybe COVID handling. But as you said, this poll, he's well above water with independents and Republicans. I mean, it's it's not that Abbott is completely invulnerable in Texas, uh, but it's also running Beto O'Rourke again, whether that's going to be a, the the strategy to unseat yeah. him is, I think, pretty highly questionable. He's he's a pretty far far left on the political spectrum when it comes to Texas Democrats, and sure. so you know that probably motivates a lot of people outside of Texas. But the big question is, how does it motivate people inside of Texas? And so far, that hasn't been the case. And then even even outside, I mean, he he was at zero percent in the Democratic presidential primary when he eventually dropped out right. so he started off way ahead actually the very early polls he did really well in that primary 
Uh, and then he dropped down to the point where he's at literally zero after making the confiscation declaration. So, I don't know. It's an interesting race, at least. It's going to get a lot of attention. Uh, at this point, it doesn't seem like Beto's super competitive, but maybe that'll change. Yep. You never know what can happen in a year. But uh, speaking of governors of Republican states, uh, Steve, you had a piece uh, about something that's going on in Florida. You want to share? Yes, that's right. Uh, Ron DeSantis, the Republican governor of Florida, said that he would sign a permitless carry bill, just as Greg Abbott did in Texas, if it made it to his desk during a private GOP event where he was asked by a, a gun rights activist. There it was this is kind of a weird video is like it looked like the guy was trying to get. It looks like DeSantis thought he was taking a picture with a, with the activist, but it was really a video. <laughs> um, uh, but nonetheless, he did ask him directly if he would sign. Uh, he's, this guy's with Florida Gun Rights, I believe, is the group as part of uh, the national. Um, uh, what is it? What's the name of their group? Uh, the Gun Rights National, national Association, Association of Gun, Gun Rights. Rights. That's right. I think that's like a Ron Paul Association group, associated group. Uh, but they have a couple state chapters, and they have one in Florida. Mm -hmm. The director of their Florida chapter went and did this. It was very odd, to be fair, <laughs> um, where he, you know, he, but he asked them directly a very clear question, which was whether he'd sign permitless carry or, or as activists call it, constitutional carry um, into law if it made it to his desk. And DeSantis said, of course. And then, you know, obviously, because of the nature of the video, I, I asked DeSantis's people for clarification on this point, and they said, Yes, he. They didn't dispute anything in the videos how they said it, uh, but the, his spokesperson was it Christine Pshaw. I hope I pronounced her name right. Sorry if not, but uh, she <laughs> she said that the video he didn't dispute anything in the video as far as the governor's position. But obviously, he would have to see the specific text of an actual bill before he could commit to supporting any particular proposal. But she did point out at the same time that the majority leader of the, the Senate down there had already made comments supportive of constitutional carry. And so when the new session comes in January, it's not, I think it's fairly likely that you'll see some sort of permitless carry bill get brought up. Now, how much DeSantis puts into pushing that bill or where it goes from getting introduced is obviously a big open question. But, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. What, what do you think, Jake? Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. We've, like, as you said, we've heard some rumblings down there from elect, state elected officials before talking about introducing constitutional carry. Um, it'll be interesting just because of where DeSantis is as a politician mm. at the moment. He's obviously either up for a reelection uh, for governor or, you know, people have tossed his name out there as a p potential presidential oh, candidate. Yeah. So we'll have to see what he thinks maybe the political baggage or the political boon that a constitutional carry type bill will be. I think the fact that Texas being a large Republican state uh, with a lot of urban areas, the fact that they've passed such a bill, I think helps the odds in Florida because um, they don't have to go out on a limb and be the first big state to, to pass that law. Yeah. Um, so I think it'll be really interesting I to think watch. There's a lot of momentum in Republican circles for permitless carry right now. I mean, you had five states yeah. pass it this year alone, five red states including Texas. You've seen Ohio's House pass it. You've seen Pennsylvania's legislature pass it. Now, it just got vetoed in Pennsylvania because they have a Democratic governor. Right. But that's interesting. I mean, Pennsylvania is more of a swing state, a purple state. It's trending red right now, but it's it's been 
more of a swing state for the last several decades. And so they right. passed it. So what's Florida going to do? That Florida is one of the few remaining states. I believe Georgia is another one. Um, there's a couple still left that have triple red governments where Republicans control the legislature and the governorship, but don't have constitutional carry or permitless carry. So I think that leaves people like Ron DeSantis vulnerable in a primary election, potentially, if he doesn't get behind that policy and Florida doesn't pass it when he goes to run for president, which seems right. almost inevitable at this point. Obviously, you have right. former President Trump uh, and all of the stuff that he likes to say and do, and who knows what he's going to end up doing. And he's still very popular with a lot of Republican voters, but DeSantis hasn't rolled out running even against him. So right. he, he's definitely one of the prime candidates for the Republicans. And it seems like he feels pressured to support this policy now. And I think that has a lot to do with the momentum that's built, been built up uh, from by gun rights activists that from the NRA to GOA to, uh, you know, this is the local state groups in Pennsylvania and Texas and, and these other states, Ohio, that, that have pushed this bill this year. And so right. I think that's an interesting development. It's definitely something yeah, I think we're going to have to keep watching and we'll have to see what, what happens in Florida, right? I mean, it's not a guarantee that it's going to pass there. It hasn't passed yet. Florida actually has some pretty weird combination of laws. I mean, Texas used to kind of be this way, too, where it had this reputation of being very pro-gun, but had a lot of laws that were stricter than even Pennsylvania or, or right. Virginia or a number of other states. So Texas has kind of moved past that now and has uh, some of the most um, gun-friendly laws in the country, if you want to. I don't know what the proper way of phrasing this is, but uh, they, they have, they, they've removed some of the restrictions that they had. Obviously, they removed the permitting process for concealed carry. And now Texas, you know, now now maybe Florida's going to be pushed to do the same thing. I mean, they just passed a number of gun control bills just a couple of years ago after Parkland. After yeah, Parkland, yeah. So it'll be a pretty interesting whiplash scenario there if they go from passing laws that restrict anyone under 21 from owning most guns to then going to permitless gun carry. Uh, while they also still have a waiting period for handgun purchases. You know, like it's it's right. a very eclectic collection of, of gun laws in Florida. So we'll have to see if this makes it through. Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, all politics is local to a certain degree still. And so uh, Florida, they call it the gunshine state, right? But they have a number of <laughs> policies that are stricter than most red states. When it comes to guns, they do. So yeah. We'll keep an eye on that, though, moving forward, for sure, because it's going to be one of the bigger stories in gun politics through the next year or so. Um, but, yeah, I think that's all we've got for you this week. Um, remember, if you want to get this podcast a day early or you want to get exclusive access to members only pieces on the reload.com, you can head on over there and buy a membership today. We've got um, ten dollars. Per month or $100 per year. So if you buy the yearly, you get two months effectively for free. And we also have a lifetime membership available for those who want to do that extra 
bit to support our reporting because this is a 100% reader-funded publication that is completely independent. And the only way to keep it that way and to keep us operating is through the support of our members. So please consider doing that today. And we will talk to you guys again real soon.